Like I said, I'm Michael Hanna. Uh, I'm an owner at E3. I've been coming here probably 10 years. My my son was in the first gathering that was eight or nine when he started, and he's got a full beard, and he's finished his first semester in college. That's terrifying. Um, uh, I've been involved with Global Outreach and uh, also with Wise Counsel. Um, my family and I... Uh, uh, my family and I like to be able to share with you. But the one thing I don't like doing is sharing uh, about my family without you knowing who I am. So, so I'm gonna bring up a picture of my family. This is my family. And uh, we were standing in the rain in Savannah to do this picture. So <laughs> I'm not sure why, but it came out really nice. So we're using it. So on the left is my son, Will, and his wife, Kelsey. And then my daughter, Katie. And she is holding Bridget, my granddaughter. And then that's Cody with Nolan, my grandson. Then some guy, bald guy. And then my wife, Martha, and my son, Brayton. And uh, so I just want you to know my family. If we're going to be talking to each other, we, we need to know who each other are. Um, the one thing that happens with this, when I teach, this, when I teach, there's something important. This will be watched in Uganda. My grandchildren are in Uganda, and they expect Papa to say hello, okay? So if you'll just buy with me, hello, Bridget and Nolan. You have a great day. We'll talk to you later. Merry Christmas. All right. I was going to have all you guys come up and turn and say Merry Christmas to him, but maybe another time it might take too much time and maybe be a little bit self-centered to do that. So, um, so this is my third time speaking at Element 3. Um, and, uh, you know, I, th I think if we, the first time I taught, and I thought, well, that's it. I, I won't have to do this again. And, and then there was a second time, and I thought, well, for sure, that's it. I've, I've done it now. And, well, this is the third time, so I'm guessing third time's the charm. We'll see what happens after this one, whether they have me back. I'm afraid that I am now in the loop, and we will continue this. So um, today we're going to be continuing our series in Advent called uh, When Good News is Actually Good, Advent 2019. And we're going to talk about several things. We're going to talk about sheep. We're going to talk about kids. We're going to talk about stars. And we're going to talk about stables. So uh, a little bit about me. I grew up in Athens, Georgia. Uh, I went to the University of Georgia. I met my wife there. Many of you have heard that story. Uh, we were married 33 years ago and moved to Thomasville about 31 years ago. And uh, I moved from a college town, suburban Athens. My dad was a professor at Georgia. And I moved to a farm. You can already see the problem starting here. Um, we moved to a farm where my, my in-laws lived uh, on this farm. And, uh, and on this farm, there was a pig. It, I want to say E-I-E-I-O so bad. <laughs> uh, so literally, the first day I opened the door to my in-laws' house, a screaming baby pig came around the corner of the refrigerator, into the room, started spinning around with five poodles chasing it, and then went back out of the room. I was no longer in Kansas. It was strange. It was a strange deal. Um, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, uh, father Terrell and Nan Singletary, uh, that's there they are. These two people were incredibly influential in my life. Um, if you could win the lottery of in-laws, I did. Uh, Terrell was my mentor, spiritually, developmentally, with my, with my family. Um, people ask me all the time, Michael, how did your kids turn out so good? And I look to them, I say, these two people right here, that is why. Martha and I had a little influence, but these two right here, if you live around them, you are going to get life right. And I appreciate that so much. When I asked Terrell to, if I could marry Martha, uh, he looked at me and says, son, he's always, he's always said, son, you'll never have anything. She'll give it all away. I said, oh, okay. So he, and he was right. So, um, so they, they lived on this farm. They lived there. Martha moved out that farm when she was nine. So we were coming home, right? 
Um, this farm was full of animals. My mother-in-law, Nan, was licensed to rehab wildlife outside of the standard animals. You have to have a license to do that. So we had this farm. We, we, there was pigs, rabbits, chickens, ducks, geese, um, guinea pigs, horses, goats, owls, deer, pigeons, raccoons, frogs, dogs, and most of all, sheep. Okay? To say it was a bit of a culture shock for me is, is quite an understatement. I learned a lot about how to feed and care for these animals from Nan and Terrell. Um, I can hypnotize the chicken. It, it is a great party, check, party trick. There's two ways to do it, and, and I can make them sit still for as long as I want them to. I came home one day, and the neighbor boys had done it. They had 11 chickens sitting on fence posts just out of it. It's pretty funny. I did it in Guatemala for some kids, and they were like, what? So... Uh, so when the in-laws would go out of town, it became my responsibility and the responsibility of my family to start feeding these animals. Um, it was a lot of work because I had no experience and, and no deep knowledge of animals. Uh, it was, I was a mess. I would get off work at five, and then I would uh, work and feed these animals. We call it feeding up. You have to change the water and the food every day, apparently. They eat every day. And uh, who knew? And they poop in their food. Who knew? Um, so we would clean up, we get all this stuff done. It would take five hours to feed up. So I'd start at five and I'd end at 10 o'clock at night. We'd come inside the house. Um, the, the sheep were particularly interesting to deal with. My father-in-law, Terrell, who I already said was brilliant, and my mentor, he had this crazy connection with the animals and the horses, and he could just call them by name. Um, he could walk down the lane. We had this from our, we lived on the front part of the farm, and there was this kind of an alleyway that went, uh, a dirt road that went down to the barn. And on the side of that barn, there was a pasture where all the sheep laid. And when I walked down there, the sheep looked at me like, who are you? I didn't care. Tara walks down, the ears pop up, boop. And he starts walking in. He has this phrase he would use. And it's a little embarrassing. And I didn't know what the first time I heard it, I was like, what are you doing? He would go, who sheep? Who sheep? And they'd jump up and they would start following him down the fence line. And they would open the gate and they would follow him into the barn we put them in a stall, and we would feed them, uh, shear them, give them medicines they needed or whatever we needed to do. But they would just follow them, and they needed time to leave. They'd let them out. They'd follow them back out. Go sheep, go sheep. And they would just follow them out to the pasture. I had to do this with him not there one time. It took me two hours to get those sheep from the pasture into the barn because they do not know my name. They do not know my voice. Uh, it really, it, it, John 10, 27 is absolutely true. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. They did not know my voice, and they did not follow me. But we need to live as these sheep do. Um, the Christmas season was one of Terrell's favorite seasons. Over the years, he, has, he established dozens of traditions. Uh, we did sausage deliveries of neighbors, Advent wreaths, singing silly Advent songs before lunch in the Christmas season. In the first gathering, my, my son was over here, and I said, I almost had to sing the Advent song. They both hung their heads like, oh, please don't do that. Um, I mentioned it last night, and my son immediately burst into the song. It, was, it, it would make y'all as awkward as it would have made me. Um, we ate supper with them from Thanksgiving to January every year. Every year, that we, we'd eat together every night. It was an amazing family unit. We had live nativity in Thomasville, and our farm provided the animals for live nativity for about 40 years, okay? So we always say it's still the donkey died. Um, but we, we provided the, the animals. And so it was real important that we get the sheep and the goats in a, in a big uh, trailer and the, and the donkey and take it up there. Um, 
One year, the trailer broke down. And the guy showed up and says, I don't have a trailer. And my wife looked at me and said, the sheep are going to Bethlehem. <laughs> well, we got a problem. He said, no, we're going to figure this out. She goes and takes the seats out of the back of our minivan. You see where this is going, right? She takes feed bags and puts them all over the back of the minivan. We herd the sheep and goats into the back of the minivan and close the door. And we transport the sheep and goat in our minivan, our fairly new minivan, whose resale value just went down. I've got my son, Will, in the back holding on to the sheep and goat to make sure they don't bang around on each other. It was hilarious. I'm looking at the rearview mirror, and I just see Will, just head of Will amongst the sheep. It was so funny. Um, so we did that. One time, the, the donkey got loose from the live nativity and went down the street on Victorian Christmas. And somebody walked back and said, you need this? I didn't know he was gone. So, um, so, so one of the best traditions that I loved was on Christmas Eve, uh, we would gather together at Terrell's house. We've had a dinner, we've cleaned up, and we're sitting there. And Terrell would be in his pajamas because he went to bed like 8 o'clock. And he'd be in his pajamas with fuzzy shoes on, and he would gather myself, my wife, my kids, his daughter, Terrell's daughters, who are all grown. They're, they're, they're not their parents, but their husbands and wives. And we would sit on the floor around Terrell, and he would start to read the Christmas story. And it was so funny because during the reading, uh, he would start to give insights uh, as to the Christmas story, many of those that we are actually talking about during this series, which I think is really kind of fun. Uh, but what was funny about it is he would give the same insights year after year after year, and it became something we expected, but we loved to hear it anyway. That is a tradition. It was amazing. He loved God. He loved Christ. He loved his church, and he had a beautiful view of Scripture. And we all have different ways we view the world and view the Scripture um, and some people are analytical, disciplined. Some people are strategic, calculating. I, I tend to operate from a place of feelings. Uh, let me tell you, this can be exhausting because I feel things very, very deeply. I also observe others and try to interpret their feelings in each situation. And that can be taxing on me as well. I'm not only dealing with my own feelings, but I'm dealing with your feelings as well too. Um, I'm trying to imagine and absorb what you're feeling when I'm communicating. It is ridiculous. This is, it's, it's not how you should do this, by the way. This is a particular problem when I feel like I'm causing pain to somebody else. Um, whether it's I've said something I, I'm uncomfortable or done something. Well, this doesn't play well in my job as a physical therapist. So I'm dealing with patients who are in quite a bit of pain all the time. I tend to identify very closely with them, and I will actually start to feel pain later in the day where they describe that pain to me. That is crazy, right? Uh, on the other side of that, if you're with me and you're experiencing joy or a celebration, a wedding, uh, a, a family get-together, a group of people you love, I can feel it deeply. I feel the happiness. I feel peace. I'm energized by the good of others and other successes. Uh, I'm also much more able to be in tune with the feeling of God's presence in my life, which has been incredibly helpful. When I think about Scripture, I tend to look at, at stories in terms of what people are feeling and experiencing. Um, you know, what were Mary and Joseph feeling uh, when they were at the manger that Elizabeth talked about when she was talking about hope? What were the wise men experiencing as they came to a country they did not know, to a culture they did not understand, and they came to see Jesus when Mike talked about peace? In the same way, I think of the shepherds and what they might have experienced outside of Bethlehem that night. 
Uh, we have a special reading right now of uh, the Luke 2 story today. Welcome my lifelong friend, Linus Van Pelt. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Probably one of my favorite Christmas specials ever. If you haven't seen the original Charlie Brown 1960s Christmas special, you need to. It tells a lot of the story of joy. Um, it so directly tells the story of uh, echoes of hope, peace, joy, love, in the midst of stress, which we all experience during this time of year. Um, in this series of Advent, we've clearly established that God was revealing His Son coming to earth in ways that no one expected to the average people. I originally said the average Joe, then I realized it was the average Joseph. Uh, he was getting the message. It wasn't coming down to the religious, uh, the religious person. Uh, it's not coming to the perfect. It could have. Bethlehem was full of people, right? It was the time of census. You know, but it was not there in Bethlehem. It was outside of that. It was not, a, it was not meeting the expectations of the religious, religious leaders who had had for decades an idea of what they expected the Messiah to come like. The shepherd and lamb are symbols used throughout the Bible to reference Jesus and his caring compassion over his people and his kingdom, of all that he is in charge of and of his sacrifice. They are really beautiful symbols of peace and reconciliation. And I think in retrospect, perfect. Uh, but it was an unexpected people to first hear the message that God's son was coming to this world. Uh, so who are the shepherds? I think we often settle on a classic nativity view of the shepherds. Um, you know, right? The men, robes, beards, responsible people, quiet and contemplative. Um, I have a confession to wake. To, to wake. <laughs> it's the first day with my new tongue. Uh, I have a confession to make. My wife is a nativity hoarder. All right? When I travel, when she travels, she will bring back a nativity or I will bring back a nativity from wherever it is we've gone. So we have quite a collection of nativities from around the world just by the nature of God has put us in some really cool places. So so here, here's nativity number one. It's our classic nativity scene, right? This is the one you, your mom had, you had, a, and the angel's wing is broken in the background there. You know, Jesus is like this, freezing to death. I don't know what that's all about, and there's no swaddling clothes. But this is the classic depiction of a, of a nativity we might have there. So number two is a California nativity. These are the fattest nativity people I've ever seen. <laughs> I was taking this picture, and I looked, and I said, well, where's baby Jesus? And I realized that's not Mary. That's baby Jesus in front of Mary. He's about as big as Mary is. So pretty, they all fit inside with each other. That's really cool. Um, a Nicaraguan and Colombian nativity is next. So these are really small. 
that, that egg there is actually the size of an egg, and uh, they're hand-carved, and, and it's kind of a cool deal. Um, they're opaque, they're really hard to show, but that's uh, from Colombia, Nicaragua. Um, the next is a Haiti uh, nativity, and, uh, no, excuse me, this is a Guatemala nativity. See, I knew about this. So this is really kind of cool, very honoring, the light pours in on baby Jesus, whoa! And uh, that's a, it's a ceramic, it's really a cool piece, we like that a lot. You gotta have it positioned correctly to get the effect. Um, so the next is the Haiti nativity. That's a little Haiti nativity. And we, and we talk about the idea um, of all these nativities uh, really being developed uh, in the culture that they came from, right? So they're all going to be a little different. They're not going to be how we see it or how they, uh, how, it's going to be how the culture sees it, where they come from. Uh, next is a soapstone uh, from Uganda, a hand-carved soapstone from Uganda, pretty cool, uh, very fragile. They have been glued back together multiple times. Um, and the next is a, is a cornstalk nativity from uh, Uganda as well. And... Uh, it was funny, my wife was over here in the first gathering, and I said this was from Haiti, and she goes, that's Uganda. So, okay, 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 okay. So, she's, again, she's, she's the hoarder of the nativity, so we, we'll go with what she said. So, again, culturally, we tend to interpret the nativity in the culture we come from. Um, we create an image that's really not real. We see the nativity in a way that doesn't really reflect the reality of the nativity. So, what do we know about the shepherds, Right? We know they were Jewish, they were out in their fields, it was night, and there were sheep. Does that cover it all? Then we got it. Um, as I said, Terrell uh, taught me a lot about sheep. And I feel like uh, it's reasonable to think that if I'm the leader of a shepherd family, probably the father of this group, um, I, would have this, I would need to have the sheep watched at night, but, but I'm not placing my best person on the night shift. Um, it's really not that hard. Feed the fire. Get the adult if the wild animals attack. So I've got a, I brought a friend with me to give you an example. So there's our sheep. Now this is a sheep during the day. The sheep during the day is going to wander around and try to get a, you know, outside of the area you want them in. So the shepherd goes around, brings them back to the center, and they, they stay in the area you want them. The shepherd is required to move around and keep them centered. Or the sheep will wander off. and they, they, It's a lot of work. So the sun sets, goes down, everybody settles down. Here's the sheep. At night. All right, now, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm the shepherd watching the sheep at night. <laughs> Pretty much watching a rock. The sheep at night, in our experience, are just there. They don't move. They settle in for the night, and they are done as a flock. They will just kind of hover right there. It, there is not much to do. So the responsibility level of a sheep at night, daytime, lots of responsibility. Nighttime, not so much. So our sheep is going to sleep right here. We're going to just get that down there. And uh, I, I think there's an argument that can be made fairly easily that shepherds watching the sheep at night, in reality, were probably kids. They probably weren't the adults. They were probably the oldest responsible child that was going out there uh, to keep the sheep while the adults slept and prepared for the next day that were going to work hard. And the child's orders were, if something happens, come get us. I, would, I, would, I think we can probably back that up. There's a scripture that we, need, we can actually go back to. If many of you realize the story uh, in Samuel, Samuel was a prophet in the Old Testament. And his, he was told by God to go select a new king of Israel. So he went to actually near Bethlehem, and he, he found the house of Jesse. And he said, Jesse, show me your sons, because I think we're going to pick a king from your people. So the story goes like this in 1 Samuel 16, 10 through 12. He says, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, 
The Lord has not chosen these. So we asked Jesse, are, are, these, um, are these all of your sons, all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and he had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. There's a precedent for the children. When things are important happening, that the children watch the sheep. So it may change your view of the shepherds a little bit. I don't know. I'm hoping it does. They were outside of Bethlehem. Um, they were keeping the sheep. The adults were doing it when the adults were doing important things in this story. A kid in that time was not even considered important enough to be considered a, a true part of culture at this point. They were less than a person. The youngest was the least of the sons. Um, the area around Bethlehem was not wealthy. It was known to, to be a land of shepherds. They were poor. Is likely the first Jewish people to hear the good news of Christ were actually children. So here we are. We're setting the scene. We're out in the, out in the fields. And uh, the brothers watching the sheep at night, keeping the wood on the fire if they even had one. The sheep are sleeping at quiet. Yep, still there. We're acutely aware of several things. We're acutely aware of the stars in the sky because it's dark. Uh, they're sitting there and things get crazy. I think the continuation, the continuation of the story gets dulled by the repeated telling of what happened next. I think we make it too simple. Uh, I think it's much richer and deeper and full of meaning. So have you ever watched or witnessed an astronomical event? Not a gastronomical event, that's different. An astronomical event. Um, this is my father, Mark Hanna. He's a professor at Georgia, and he was a a bit of a renaissance man. He loved stargazing. Uh, he was an amateur astronomer, not an astrologer, but an astronomer. Uh, and he, would, he and I would go outside multiple nights a week, and he'd set up his telescope, and we would look at the things in the sky. He would show me moon, stars, planets, planets with moons, galaxies, you know, millions of miles, light years away. Um, you may, Things are always happening in the sky. And he was always acutely aware of telling me these things. Uh, last night in Tallahassee, there was a meteor shower. Uh, and there were, you, could, you could have sat outside if the moon hadn't been so bright and watched 60 meters an hour streaking through the sky. Uh, the International Space Station crosses all the time. You can look it up, see when it is. The next pass, next really good pass here is 627 a.m. on Saturday, December 21st. Six minutes uh, southwest to northeast, you can see it. It's the brightest thing in the sky moving. My dad showed me uh, so much about the night sky, and his love of the night sky made me feel a familiarity with it. So when special things happen, I was particularly aware of it. He would call me, hey, there's a meteor shower. Hey, the International Space Station's going over. He would tell me these things. He actually uh, was so intense on being able to see the stars from his house that he had my brother go in a lift bucket and spray paint the street light outside his house so it wouldn't shine in his house so he could see better. Um, Several years ago, uh, I traveled to Colorado with my dad, uh, and we went camping. We sat out there, and if you've ever been to Colorado and laid outside at night, it is a totally different sky than you have here. Um, in Tallahassee, the stars are an afterthought. You can't see them well. There's so much ambient light. In Colorado, we looked up, and there was this unfamiliar palette in its brilliance. Uh, I could not believe it. I laid there, so I sleeping bag and just stared at this magnificence. Um, 
And I was grateful and more confident in God simply because of the heavens he created. If the God that did that is for me, I'm going to be okay. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens will proclaim your glory, the skies the work of your hands. Absolutely. Uh, there was one particular time at home at our farm in Thomasville, and, and I was speaking with some friends of mine in the yard, and we had just had a bonfire, and we were, we were saying our goodbyes. And I'm facing my buddy, and we're talking, and all of a sudden, his face lights up. I don't mean like, I don't mean like smiling. His face lit up. His body lit up. His wife's face lit up, body lit up. Shadows started forming. It was like daylight. And I was suddenly afraid. I didn't know what was going on. The shadows were shimmering. It was crazy. I turned around expecting to see an airplane crashing into us. Um, what I saw was a bright light right above us, intensely shining and moving out to the west. It suddenly broke into four distinct pieces and then faded as quickly as it arrived. There was total silence. It was a meteor that had creased the sky and blown up over our house. Amazing. Uh, this all took several seconds, but it was shocking, uh, amazing, terrifying all at the same time. I actually bent my knees to get under whatever was happening. It felt so close. Um, but that's our first response, right? When something happens, ooh, what was that? If we don't understand it, we duck. I can only imagine the sheer terror the shepherd boys would have felt when the first angel appeared with the glory of God shining around them. So, so what's the first thing the angel has to say? Do not be afraid. Not be afraid. So uh, there it is again. This is God's constant, repetitive refrain, his first proclamation to us. Trust me, he's saying. God knows our instinct to duck and cover when we're frightened. He's gracious enough to acknowledge that, but he says, don't be afraid. My wife always says, if God has to say, don't be afraid so much, then why are we living such safe lives? Maybe we need to take a chance. So if you're thinking about Guatemala, don't be afraid. Take a chance. That continues on, the angel says in Luke 2, 8 and 1, I bring you good news, uh, 2, 8, excuse me. I bring you good news uh, that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in claws, lying in a manger. Who was the message to? What did they hear? It was to all people. Again, that radical God changing the story up again. Um, the angels say so little publicly that we need to, we need to pay attention to what they say. He, the angel went against the Hebrew-centric ideas that the Savior was only for them, that the Messiah was just for the Hebrews. Uh, the angel took the time to define that. It was for everybody. It was for an unmarried couple having a baby in a manger. It was for astrologers from the east who had come, those magicians. It was for those that are the lowest rung of Hebrew society and shepherd kids sitting out in a field at night. Just in case we as humans missed the fact, the Magi knew, the average Joseph and Mary knew, and now the poor and lowly shepherd boys knew too. And then it changed again. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Armies of heaven. So let's just really picture this. When I was at Live Nativity, uh, and the lights would go down and the angels, second angels would appear, we went from one angel to four. I think that misrepresents what just happened. If you look up what a host is, it goes back to a Greek word called stratia, which means as many as the stars of heaven. 
covering the sky. Can you imagine one angel to a sky covered edge to edge with angels all singing praises and glory to God? Overwhelming. I think you're on your knees or burying your head. It's, it's powerful. It's not a moment we just go, ah, they all sang. It is a powerful moment to these shepherds. It's a crazy deal. So, so what's the shepherd's response? Think like a kid. The angels go back to heaven. They're looking at each other. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's go see what's going on. So Scripture says, when the angels returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Then they got irresponsible in the best way. They left their flocks. They dropped their responsibilities and went. Probably stuck the youngest kid in charge of keeping the sheep. Keep watching the sleeping sheep. You, Jimmy. Yes, you. I, I, don't, I know you want to go. You're staying here. And the older boys went. Um, they spontaneously did what they had heard about. They didn't weigh the responsibility of the thing they were called to do. That's like a kid, right? That's childlike. It's awesome. Jesus backs up this type of uh, love response when he's talking about teaching his disciples and the kids come to Jesus. And in Matthew 19, 14, he says, Jesus said, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And maybe we need to be more like the kids. Continuing in chapter 2, they hurried to the village. They didn't just walk. They hurried to the village and they found Mary and Joseph and there was the baby lying in a manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying, praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Think about Mary and Joseph. They had just been through a traumatic evening. They had just had a child. That's traumatic. Let's just face it. In that time, very traumatic, very difficult thing to do. Uh, I don't think God went easy on them. I think it was a real birth. Uh, Joseph couldn't find a room for them to stay in. That's a whole other set of stories if you're married. You don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> then visitors arrive. Visitors arrive and tell this fantastic story to her and Joseph. The shepherds are excited. I bet a little bit bewildered. There's something we don't understand in this story. The shepherds would have understood something significant. Uh, the non-shepherd might have missed this. They were told that the baby would be wrapped in cloths. These cloths were also known as swaddling cloths. This is more significant than the shepherds even understood at this point in Jesus' life. You see, swaddling cloths were used by the shepherds of the Hebrew tribe of Levi to wrap the new lambs who were raised specifically for sacrifice in Jerusalem at the temple. They were to protect the lambs from blemish, to protect them. Uh, this, in retrospect, is clear foreshadowing Christ's ultimate sacrifice for us. So the shepherds see Jesus, and they understand there's something different. That's why it was an important sign that this was a Levite sign, and they understood it. Mary and Joseph, um, they, see, they see the shepherds of Jesus and Mary and Joseph. They've seen this, and it's just like the angel said. Everything is exactly like it was told they would be. They begin to talk. They outwardly express their joy. They tell Mary and Joseph the stories. They start to tell anyone that would listen. They react with joy and go off praising God and glorifying God. Mary had a little bit different reaction. It was an inward joy that she developed. 
I like the version that say Mary treasured these things in her heart. Um, Mary doesn't fully understand all that will happen, but uh, we know. We know it will happen, but she didn't. She's been riding this wave uh, of creative God moments, and the shepherd's story is just one more. She treasures these things in her heart, meaning she can think fondly back on these moments and have joy. The first statement by the angel we traditionally hear it is, I bring you good tidings of great joy. The angels essentially are bringing God's joy to us. So what is joy? It's not an emotion. Uh, it's something that can be brought to us. I think about Terrell reading the Christmas story, and I have joy. I think about um, embarrassing Advent songs at the table and eating with my mother-in-law and father-in-law, and I have joy. I think about hundreds of meals we shared at that table, the rich conversations, and I have joy. I think about my family, whether they're here in Uganda or not, and I have joy. Pastor Rick Warren defines joy as the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life, the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right, and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. This does not make us exempt from pain, sorrow, or loss. But it does mean they're not bound to stay in them. We have this option to pick up joy and run with it, or we can leave it where we found it. It is a choice. One of my favorite things about the holiday season is people getting together, whether it's your family, your friends, or whoever your people are, and talking. Inevitably, the one phrase that will come up in these conversations is, do you remember when... When you get back, you just had Thanksgiving, so you all heard this. Do you remember when Joey did this? Do you remember when that happened? It always brings up emotions because it's the past. So it's things we look back on and, and, and love in our lives. It brings up great emotions. It makes me think back to my childhood, waking up Christmas morning. Uh, our stockings went in our beds, and they were full of dart guns. And I would load that dart gun and go shoot my brothers in their bed in the morning before they would get up. We'd have a two-hour dart gun battle. It brings joy, I'm just saying makes me think about the countless traditions that we established uh, over Christmas through the years with our, our primary families and then those secondary families we developed along the way. As those traditions change, it can become painful. As we lose people in our lives, circumstances change. We often feel like it's an end to something. We often process that feeling as loss. If we don't remake this somehow, we can get stuck. We can get stuck in that moment of sadness and melancholy for each holiday, and we can begin to lament each thing that we don't have anymore. I believe that we, we have to look to the angels who said, I bring you good tidings of great joy. But if it's a gift brought to us, a choice, then we should follow the example of the shepherd. And I ask you, will you, will you pick this up? Will you take it with you as they did? We have to be willing to pick up joy, which was left by our forefathers. I call them joy bearers of our youth. Joy bearers of our youth. We then become the joy bearers for those that follow us. I'm the one now who reads the Christmas story on Christmas Eve. My father-in-law's gone. My mother-in-law's gone. My dad is gone. And I could look back and I could look at Christmas Eve and say, I don't like that anymore. And I could be embittered and sore. And go, I have loss. We all do. We are given that. It'll happen. 
But I can look back and say, man, there's so much joy that I was given by those events and those things. And I will bear that joy and take it to my children. And now I sit in the chair and the same people are in that room still. And we read the Christmas story and we think and we remember and we have joy in our hearts. Uh, my kids, uh, they did this on their own. They wake up early Christmas morning and they go into their room without us and they read the Christmas story to each other each Christmas morning. I just found out they were doing this uh, one morning. I thought it was pretty cool. I think it was just killing time so the youngest one wouldn't get up so early. So we had a choice the first uh, year that Terrell was gone, 2010. Do we continue? Yeah, we do. We pick up that joy and we walk forward with it. Do we honor that joy? The tradition continues. Um, each generation has a new set of joy bearers. And each generation will look back at the generation before and say, man, do you remember when? So you may have lost your parents. You may have lost your friends. You may have had a change in your status of, of friendships. But those kids are looking at you going, man, you remember what mom and dad, grandma and granddaddy did and the joy they brought. And then one day they'll pick up those joy bearers and they'll walk forward with those. I believe that if we're able to stop and remember the goodness of God and what He's done, then we can choose to reestablish joy, not necessarily an emotion, but a deep-seated understanding of who God is and the good He's done for us. I believe the shepherd's life was changed forever that night because they could, they could always go back to that moment and say, do you remember when the angels came? Do you remember how high we jumped? Do you remember you hid behind the rock? Do you remember when you lost a sandal? Do you remember when we found the baby wrapped in those swaddling clothes, just as the angel had said? Do you remember when we heard truth from the sky and it was terrifying, amazing, and full? After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. I bet the conversation around the campfire changed significantly. These insignificant shepherd children have become the first joy bearers of God's good news. That's awesome. They left as shepherds from the manger, no different than when they got there, but the narrative had changed. Their hearts had changed. They had picked up joy, and they went away praising God and glorifying God. That's what true joy does. Joy has been given to you. You can choose to give joy. When traditions change, it's your call to carry the tradition, to be the new joy bearer. It's important that we assume the mantle of those before us. Did we pick it up? Did we honor it? Or did we leave it on the ground hoping that someone else would? The angel brought joy, joy from God. That is really, really good news. In this series, we've been talking about how Jesus' arrival is good news. And then we're inviting people in our community to come up and talk about how each week impacts them personally. I'm going to invite Ricky Overstreet to come up and... Uh, I want you to hear her words. I got to hear it in the first gathering. We did not talk about this at all. And I will just leave it at that. Thank you, Ricky. In a holiday season where songs, sermons, commercials, and even wrapping paper are all inundated with the word joy, I often struggle to actually feel joyful. The stress of decorating, cooking, baking, buying everyone the perfect gift, and at least for me, grading stacks of assignments and midterms, often keeps me from being fully present, fully grateful, and fully joyful. 
Honestly, I find it difficult to be joyful in most times and seasons. I struggle to be joyful when I wake up at 3 a.m. to feed and rock a baby to sleep or when my baby cries during the service. Sorry for those of you who heard that today. Um, I struggle to be uh, joyful um, when I have to figure out how to herd and somehow teach loud and rambunctious middle schoolers for seven hours a day or when I wonder how the money in my bank account will stretch to cover all my needs or when I fall back into unhealthy coping patterns after doing so much work to replace them. I imagine all of us have lives full of stress, pain, hopelessness, and adversity right now. And perhaps I am not the only one who struggles to feel joyful in the difficult or even the seemingly mundane moments of life. When you look at the gospel, Jesus' life wasn't any better. His life does not seem particularly joyful to me. He was tempted in the desert for 40 days. He often sought out lonely places to pray. One of his best friends betrayed him and all of his friends eventually abandoned him, and he was beaten and crucified on a cross. And yet, somehow, we are told that the gospel is good news that brings joy. The angels tell Mary to rejoice at the news of Jesus' coming. John the Baptist says that his joy has been fulfilled upon seeing the Christ. Jesus' life was full of hardship, but his life was also defined by joy. Jesus reminds me that joy is not dependent on our circumstances or even our feelings about our circumstances. Jesus' life did not lack joy because of the adversity he faced, but rather his life created joy because of the way he responded to that adversity. He chose to respond to hardship and disappointment with love, service, healing, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And this is good news because Jesus' actions remind me that joy is not an emotion that happens to me as I passively wait to experience it through the absence of difficult times. Joy is a perspective and a response that I actively choose, and I must choose it over and over again in each moment of every day. Regardless of what I'm going through or feeling, I can choose to see life through the lens of Christ by seeing the beauty, abundance, and grace in the world, and by choosing to respond to the stimuli of life with presence, acceptance, gratitude, love, and joy. We can't passively wait for joy to happen to us. We are Christ's body after all, which means we are called not to feel joy, but rather to be joy to the world.